If you have your Bibles this morning, if you want to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, there should be a Bible in front of you as well, a pew rack in front of you. If you don't have one with you, you can use that one there. Feel free. Ephesians 6 is where we've been. Last week, we saw the very situation that mankind finds themselves in, that we are all in. There is a battle that is taking place every single day in the spiritual realm. It might not be one that we see with our physical eyes, but it's one that we definitely feel with our physical bodies, that we see taking place amongst our family members, amongst coworkers, even within ourselves. We feel the effects of it. And we know that Satan is leading this charge against God and his church because this is what we're told. We're told this here, that Satan is the one doing this, and we are to withstand the schemes of, of the devil. So Satan leads this charge. And remember, it's, it's a charge against God. It's a charge against his church and, and his kingdom. And so in verse 13, how we ended last week, we've been called to stand firm. And the Bible told us to do all that we can to stand firm. One of the things that happens on a message like that is uh, I can become aggressive, I guess. I know this when my wife asked me after, do you get any comments on your sermon? She never asked me that, ever. I'm like, why, do you have one? She's like, I was just curious. Did you get any comments? And I kept pressing, why? Why are you asking me this? You never asked me this. But I knew what it was. It was because the aggressiveness that was there towards the end in trying to encourage all of us to do all that we can to stand firm. And I guess I want to clarify the aggressiveness a little bit in this way. And I, I shared this. We always do a midweek discussion that goes on to our podcast station that maybe you, you might listen to. I would encourage you to if you don't. But it is very hard. I would think you would agree. As a teacher, as a parent, as a coach, whatever it might be, to watch a, to watch a student or to watch you know, a kid who has all the skills, they have it. You see it. They have all the advantages, whatever it might be. So for me, it's, I, I like basketball. You, know, and you, you see the kid and he's six foot 10. And you see he can actually walk and not fall over. You see that he can jump. You see him with a ball and he can catch the ball, right? You see all this stuff in this kid and you're like, you have all these things. But then you, you start to work with that kid and you see they don't have a work ethic. They're just not that interested. And it's frustrating. It's frustrating as to me because you think you have everything. You've had everything given to you. God's given you height. You have, you have some skill. You have coordination. But you're just not willing to put the, the work in. You're not willing to put in some effort to do well. Maybe you've had this as a parent with your own kid. Maybe they struggle with their grades, and you know they're smart. They're smart as a whip, and they have everything they need. They have the books. You're trying to help them. They're in a, they're in a good school. They just keep failing to turn their homework in, or they just don't do their homework. And as a parent, what does that cause you to do? Get frustrated. Do the work, right? Put in the work. And I guess that's where the aggressiveness comes in, because it's not just an aggressiveness towards you, but it's an aggressiveness towards myself. 
Because I know that when I read the word of God and when we see here that God has given us everything we need to withstand the schemes of the devil. Yet every day when I look in the mirror, I have to look at that person who I'm frustrated with, who's been given everything and yet still fails because not willing to put in the work. I look at myself and I see how this sin has conquered me again. Or I see how laziness has conquered me again. Or whatever it might be has conquered me again and again and again. And so that's where the frustration lies. It's, it's not a frustration of anger or malice. It's, it's you have everything. It's right there at your feet. You can succeed. Just, just stand firm. Just, just put in the effort. Put in the work. And as a church, we got to be reminded of this. God has given us all the tools we need to stand firm. We don't have to keep coming up with new strategies, right? We don't have to market ourselves good enough to be able to withstand these things. No, God has given us all we need as the church to stand firm against Satan and his attacks. We just need to know what those things are. We need to be faithful to use those things, to be in those things, to grow in these things. And today we start our journey through the armor of God to look at the tools that God has given us in this battle against Satan. And so hopefully over the next few weeks, we'll probably take a break though because of Easter, we'll have our tools. We'll know what they are, and hopefully we'll be promising God that we'll be growing in them so that we can withstand Satan and his schemes. Follow along with me, Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. I'm gonna read all the way through 17. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. One might wonder why Paul uses this metaphor of a soldier, specifically a Roman soldier, <clears throat> I think there's multiple things that come into play here. Uh, number one, Paul has been chained to a soldier. Chained to a soldier at all times. And so he knows exactly what he looks like, what a soldier looks like. It is imprinted in his mind of what a, what a soldier wears and what he's looking at. Also, those who are hearing this letter would also have an idea of what a soldier looks like. And so it's not like Paul's pulling some analogy, just some crazy analogy. It's, it's a well-known thing that everybody has seen. They've They've seen a soldier. Uh, they've been close to a soldier. And so they know every piece that Paul is talking about here uh, very, very well. But also, I think this gets overlooked. Uh, Alistair Begg brought this up. I, I thought it was very helpful. You've got to remember Paul's background. Paul has a great expertise when it comes to the Old Testament. And when it comes to the Old Testament, the Old Testament actually speaks quite often in this way that we see Paul talking about here talking about a soldier and how they are arrayed. And we see in, the, in Isaiah 
and also in Psalms, we see prophecies being made when talking about Christ, when talking about Jesus, the Messiah, and they speak about Jesus in this way. And so Paul would definitely have thought about this, and he would think that his readers, the people in the church who were Jewish anyways, would know this as well. And so they would recognize it from the Old Testament and from these prophecies. Isaiah 11, verse 5, the, the prophet there says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And Isaiah 52, 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns, talking about the feet that brings peace of the good news. That's exactly what Paul says here, that you should put on your feet, the gospel of peace, right? Isaiah 59, verse 16 to 17, says he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. You see, it's not a mistake that Paul's talking about this in the New Testament. And it's not a mistake that I've been telling you as we've talked about this armor of God. The armor of God that he has given you, it's not your own armor. It's the armor of Christ that he wore into battle and won and is victorious. That's what we see in this prophecy. Or if you really want to submit it, I want to read some of Psalm 24 for you, because I think this really puts it into play. Listen to this psalm. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul and what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up. O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. This is Jesus. This is the Jesus we come here to worship. He is the king of glory. And it might not be the king that you're picturing, the king just sitting on the throne and ruling and, and saying, do this, do that. No, he's the king who went out into battle for us and won the battle. He fought the battle for us and he won. He is victorious. And now he has given us the whole armor of God to wear. And this is what Paul is talking about. This is what needs to be in our mind as we look at the armor of God as we go through these things that God has given us. Now, some would want to look at the pieces of armor, right? It might be cool, you know, you have a Roman soldier figurine up here and all the, all the pieces of armor. I, I understand that to an extent, but that's not the point of this. The point of this passage isn't about the armor. It's not about a helmet. It's not about a belt, which we're going to look at today. It's not about what's on your feet necessarily. And, and I think sometimes we try to make some really strong connections, which I don't think we can necessarily do. You say, well, Pastor Tim, how, how are you basing this on that? Well, there's other places in Scripture that Paul talks about 
the garments of a soldier and relates them to things and they're different than what he says here. 1 Thessalonians 5.8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet of hope of salvation. Well, that breastplate's different than the one that he talked about. It's a breastplate of righteousness that we're gonna look at next week. Is Paul confused? Is something happening here? No, it's not about the breastplate. It's not necessarily about the belt. It's not necessarily about the shoes or the helmet. It's about what those represent. And that these are the tools that God has given us to withstand Satan and to be faithful. And so we see that Paul starts off with truth. He starts off talking about truth there in verse 14, the beginning part. Having fastened on the belt of truth. Or girded your loins with truth, you might say. The question that you have to ask is what does Paul mean when he talks about truth here? What kind of truth is he speaking of? I think there's two options. The first one is it is a truth that we carry within us. Uh, what I mean by that is Paul's calling for us as the church to be truthful people. People who tell the truth. Uh, people who are seen as uh, people who stand for the truth. The other option, though, is, is Paul talking about a truth that is outside of us. And what I mean by that is, is he talking about Christ, that Jesus is the truth that we must trust in? Is that what he's speaking of here? The fact is, as you try to study this in great depth, what you'll find is there is a debate on both sides, uh, with great theologians on both sides who can speak very well to each option. But I think... As you look at this passage, both options can definitely be inferred from what Paul is saying. I don't think you should throw one away uh, for any reason. Later, the reason that this happens, if you, if you notice later, what is our sword? Uh, we were talking about this at home last night. Our sword is what? It's, it's the word of God. We've been given the word of God as our, as our sword. But we, could also, we also say that this is truth. And so some people will try to differentiate this truth from that truth, and they, this is how they do it of what we're talking about here. But again, I think both options can be inferred here of what Paul is saying. We learn this truth in the word of God. We are to be grounded in the truth. We are to trust in the truth. That is Jesus. We, we trust in him fully with our lives. We surrender our life to him, who he is, what he has done, what he continues to do. And then this if, if God's word is true, and it tells us if, if this is true, if we put our trust in Christ, what that then does is it changes us then to be truthful people. Or you could say people of the truth. So I don't think you can separate the two types of truth that I mentioned there at the beginning. As Christians, we are to be people of the truth. We trust in the truth, and we would say he alone is the truth. There is no other truth apart from Christ. And we'll get to that here later. But then we're also truthful people, where Jesus would even encourage us, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't need to be swearing on anything, right? No, I got my two fingers in the air. No, as Christians, if I said it, that's what I believe to be true. And you can trust me with this. Well, why is truth so important? Why would Paul put that here? Why does this have to be one of the, one of the things that we need to withstand Satan? I think you would agree with me that today, for many people, truth is not important. Truth has been eroded away. Truth today is something that usually is defined as something you feel is right. 
You don't necessarily have to prove it. You just have to be able to say, well, for me, it's true. And then there's no arguing, right? You, there's, no, there's nothing that you can say after that. Truth seems to be something nowadays that can change based on location, based on the person, based on the time, or based on the technological advancement that might be happening in the day. I would hope that, speaking to you who've come to church, that you believe that by coming here, you're here to hear truth. And that you have some sort of understanding of why truth then is important. The fact is, if there is no truth, then there is no real way of life. There's no way to live apart from truth. If there's nothing absolute, then there's no standard. Right? There's no standard to live by then. There's, there's no foundation. There's, there's really nothing to base anything off of. We would just live in complete chaos. It'd be like trying to build a home and your tape measure has different measurements than mine. I'm telling you it's 12 inches and you say, I measured 12 inches, but your 12 inches is my six inches. We're going to have a problem when we build. All right, there's going to be chaos. We might be able to do it for a little bit, try to figure some things out, but in the end, it's going to fail. It's going to fail until the two of us can get together and establish what? Truth. What is the truth that we're going to go by when building this house? Our world cannot function without truth. And what God has given us in revealing himself to us is he has given us an unchangeable truth that extends beyond time because God has existed before time ever began. He's given us a truth that extends beyond location. And whether you like it or not, or whether I like it or not, God has given us a truth that doesn't take into account my feelings. It's true whether I like it or whether I don't like it. And this is where too often nowadays we get hung up. We struggle with it. We say, God's word is truth. We say, we believe all of this. And you have someone come to you and say, well, what about the God of the Old Testament? You say, well, what do you mean? Well, that God seems very harsh. He has full nations killed. We see all this stuff happening. And they'll say something like this. I cannot believe a God like that is loving. That is their truth. Why? Because that's what they believe to be true. That's what they feel to be true. Not because that's what the Bible says, because the Bible is very clear. God is of love. God is love. Plain out. Whether you like it or not, God is love. This God that we have been given, the God who is unchangeable in his truth, is a God of love. And so our God is an unchanging God. Now that can sound scary, but Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Today, if you run into somebody who says, I will not change, what are they? Hard-headed, ignorant, right? You're frustrated with them. And so a lot of people, when you hear this about God, God does not change. This is what they think then of God. Again, this is their truth. But what we learn in the word of God is that while this may seem like bad news to many people, that God doesn't change, it's actually what we need because God is 
truth. And what we need is a truth that never changes. Scripture's very clear on this, about God being the God of truth. When speaking of the Trinity and speaking of the Father in John 17, 3, notice what it says. For I, the Lord, do not change. There, or I copied that one. Let me look it up. John 17. Go in your Bibles there, if you will. John 17, verse 3. It says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There, the Father being declared the only true God. Later, in John 14, which is earlier, John 14, 6 to 7, I already alluded to this. When speaking of Jesus, the Son, says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do, you do know him and have seen him. It's statements like this that would get Jesus killed. This is the blasphemy that he would speak, declaring himself to be God. And why is he declaring himself to be God? Because he's saying, I am truth. That was only given to God, the Father. But Jesus is saying, no, I am truth. And this is where our world today struggles. And if you're a faithful Christian and you tell people this, this is where you'll see pushback. When you say, there's only one way to God. And it's Jesus, that's it. You're gonna get pushback for that. Why? Because that doesn't feel cozy. It's much easier to say, the Muslim people, they serve the God of Abraham. The Jewish people, they serve the God of Abraham. The Christian people, they serve the God of Abraham. Therefore, they're all serving the same God. Now, this is a logical thing that you hear today, and it is what many will claim to be truth, but there's a problem with that. As Christians, we believe, Jesus has said, the only truth is through him. The Muslims do not go through Jesus. The Jewish people, sadly, do not go through our Messiah, Jesus. The faithful Christian people would stand and say, Jesus is the only truth. It is only through him you can know the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. But it's not just the Father and Son who are declared as truth. 1 John 5, 6, the Holy Spirit is as well. Jesus said to him, man, I did it again. Look at that. I copied the same thing again. All right, go to 1 John. This is what happens when you work from home with a, a child with the flu. You're just trying to survive. <clears throat> 1 John 5, 6. It says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies. Why? Because the Spirit is truth. All three persons of the Trinity declared as truth. What we have here is we have God revealing himself to us as truth through his son. The Bible lays it out for us, the truth of this world. Sin has brought forth death in this world. Sin has brought forth destruction. Sin has brought forth all kinds of pain and anguish. And we know this, we see this. It's not hard to convince people of this. But what they need to know is true is this. God, through his son, has provided a way for you 
to be forgiven of your sin. You can't do it on your own. You have to do it through Christ, through his Savior, right? And so God, it tells us in his word, sheds his grace on us, and we, in response, by faith, respond in trust in Jesus. And that is the only way. That's the only way. There is no other way. This is the only way to deal with the human problem of sin. That is it. There's no other way around it. You can't do so many good things. You can't pay so much money. You can't come to church so much. You can't come talk to Pastor Tim and tell me something and I say, here is a token. Give that at the pearly gates. You get in. It doesn't work that way. The problem is sin. And the answer that God has given us to sin is Jesus. His perfect life, his brutal death, but his glorious resurrection. That's what we have. That's, that's the truth that we hold on to as Christians. And listen, we cannot be surprised that the world pushes back against this. You cannot be surprised that your coworker says, you're talking about some guy who lived 2,000 years ago? That means something to me? You can't be surprised that they talk in this way. Paul told us as much. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Don't be shocked when you stand for the truth and the world says, you're just some country bumpkin who's dumb. That was for the kids who, uh, parents are like, you said dumb and that's a curse word in our house. I said it again. <clears throat> it's gonna happen. We can't fancy it up. We can't water it down. We can't, we can't shave the rough edges of our message that God has given us because it's not a message that I've come up with myself. It's a truth that has been handed down to me. As a Christian, it's been handed down to you by God the Father. And it's simple. Share this truth. They will either say yes or they will either say no. They will say you look unwise. They will say that you look foolish. But remember, even the, small, even the, the, the greatest weakness of God that it would say is, is much stronger than man. The, the, the world claims to be wise, but what has God done? He's proven them to be foolish. I mean, you think about what we claim to be smart as as men 100 years ago. And now we look back and think, <laughs> they only knew what we knew now. How much we've advanced now. God has given us his truth 
And Paul here encourages us as the church to wear truth as our belt. To the soldier, their belt was foundational. It's what gave them freedom of movement. It allowed them to maneuver without tripping over themselves because they would wear things that look like dresses. And what they would do is they would tuck, they would pull it up and tuck it in their belt. This would allow them to run freely. It would really be foundational for them. And what Paul is saying here is kind of the same for us when it comes to truth. Truth provides for us the ability to maneuver in this world that is full of toil, that is full of struggle. It gives us our firm foundation on which we can't be tossed back to and fro as if we're tied down. We can withstand that. Right? We can, yes, we might move a little side to side in the waves, but we're not going to be knocked over. Why? Because we have our foundation of truth, which gives us the freedom to maneuver in this world. It gives us understanding of why things are happening the way that they're happening, because we know the truth and we can stand on the truth. And it's this truth that we must hold fast to. It's this truth that we need to hold on to beyond anything else. Hebrews chapter 10, this is the last set of scriptures I'm going to read for you this morning. It's a little longer, but Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25, and then I'm going to skip a little and read verses 32 to 39. But the writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, this could say, since we have the truth, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And skipping ahead to verse 32. But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. What is the writer of Hebrews doing here? What is he, what is he talking about here? He's encouraging this church. Hold on to the truth. It's what you've been doing, he said. When you were enlightened, when you came to know Christ, you started to face hardship. You cared for people. It says you even were plundered. People came into your home and stole your things, but you didn't care. Why? Because you knew you had something greater. You had truth. Those were just things. You have truth. 
And you know that your reward is much greater that is waiting for you. And this writer is encouraging them what? Keep doing that. Stop neglecting getting together and knowing the word of God together. Keep getting together and worshiping together. Keep encouraging one another to push on in the truth. And this really is the big question for each of us in here this morning. Again, I don't mean to be aggressive if that's how it's took. But you need to be able to answer this question. And I ask you this out of great love. But do you actually believe the truth of God? Is it real in your heart? Is it actually real in your life where you can say, Pastor Tim, I understand what he's meaning about that belt and about being able to maneuver in this world because I'm solid on the truth. Or are you one that you actually feel like your legs are tied? And whenever a new theory is floated out to you about Jesus, which is going to happen here pretty soon on National Geographic and on the History Channel, they love doing it this time of year. That, you know, he really was just, his body was thrown and probably eaten by dogs. And there, he was never really put in tomb. That was all fake. That's not how they treated criminals. I've heard these things before. And you struggle with that stuff. And you feel like you're tied down and that you're wobbling. And why? It's because you're not 100% confident you believe in this truth. That's the question that we have to ask. Do I believe in the truth of God? Do I really believe in this word? Is it what I put all of my hope, all of my trust, all of my peace in, in what this says? Or is it something else? I don't get on Facebook too often. but Sometimes I do just to see if there's things on there I can buy, golf-related usually. And I came across something as I was trying to do that. I started to see a common post amongst some people and it was one of those things where it was like, if you don't post this again, you don't really love Jesus or whatever, one of them dumb things that people do. But I had a problem with it because as I was reading it, it was saying how they believe in God, they do this, I'm gonna stand for this, you might think this, but I'm not ashamed to say this. And part of this little saying went down and it said, and by the way, so what if we as Christians are wrong? What harm has it done? Ooh, now wait a second. If you're telling me that's how your faith is in, your faith is in probability, not truth. We should go play blackjack together and trust in the probability of the next card. That's not the faith that God tells us to live. Yeah, if I'm wrong, what does it hurt? A truth, 100% in Christ is, I can't be wrong because this isn't a truth that I've come up with. This is a truth that comes from the one who is truth, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This comes from the Word of God that's been given to us by the Holy Spirit. Yes, written through men, but penned by the Holy Spirit so that the church could be built, so that the church could remain strong. And this is the truth that we must be cemented in, his truth and nothing else. Not a wish, not as our world would say, some hope and a prayer, but a foundational truth. But you cannot move me from this. You cannot separate me from this truth because I am his and he is mine. See, the prodigal son had to learn a hard way the truth. 
When he was at home with his dad, he didn't think he had it all that good. He thought life would look better outside the walls and protection of his father. And so he treated his father as if his dad had died. So give me my inheritance. And he got to go. His father loved him enough to say, go, go ahead. And what happened? He learned truth real quick. Squandered his money. Lived a life of sin and rebellion. But finally the truth kicked in and he wised up and he said, maybe I should go home. Maybe I should go home. Even the servants have it good at my dad's house. And now again, the crazy thing of that story is many of us would expect that when the son's coming and the dad sees him, <laughs> I figured right about now, Yep, I figured I'd be getting a call right about now, and here you come. What do you want? It's hard out there, isn't it, son? It's difficult. Well, I gave you everything. I gave you everything. I don't have anything else to give. You got what you deserved. You got your inheritance. You're on your own. That's what we would expect to see. There's some in here that would probably say that would have been the loving thing to do to that kid. Teach him the hard way. But no, in this story, Jesus is teaching us the truth of the love of a father. And the love that the father has for you, his child, if you're a Christian this morning. If you've trusted in Christ, this is the same love that God has for you. And I say that because I'm guessing all of us in here as Christians at times kind of feel wobbly even on the truth. There's times you probably do struggle with some doubt. And I think we all go through that. But that's something we still need to confess to the Father. Say, Father, forgive me for those times when I struggle with the truth. I just, I hear all these things. I hear all these outside voices. God, help me. Help me to be centered on you and your truth. And you know what he does? He celebrates just like the father and the prodigal son. My child is back. I love him. I love her. She is mine. And so I hope this morning you'll answer this question honestly. Do you believe in the truth of God? Have you personally trusted wholeheartedly in Jesus Christ, in the work that he accomplished in his life on the cross in raising from the grave and now sitting at the right hand of the Father? I can't answer that question for you. You can play the game and look very good in here with us and with me and have me come. It's easy to trick me. But you know, I don't. And my encouragement to you would be to trust in God. To trust in God. He alone is the truth and he is unchanging. It will not change on you. It's not, there won't be something new that you have to do in 15 years. It's an unchanging truth that Christ died for your sins to redeem you, to justify you, to save you. If by faith you will believe in that truth. And as Christians, I hope that we will cement to that even stronger this morning. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. We want to pray and then we'll sing a song. But I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the word of God as well. We do this every week. We always close with a song. And 
The reason we close with the song is for you to respond to what you just heard. To give you a time to pray, to give you a time to meditate on the word of God, maybe to give you a time to go to others, to seek forgiveness, whatever it might be, however God has worked in your life. But I trust that the Holy Spirit is working in your life. I hope that you will respond to him. God, I thank you for your truth. And God, I pray that as Christians, we would wear it as a belt around our waist. That gives us freedom. That helps us to see the world for what it is. To know why there's so much struggle, why there's so much pain, why there's so much hurting. It's because of sin. To be reminded that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. We're not wrestling against other humans. There, there is a war taking place in the spiritual realm. That Satan is our enemy. And that it would give us compassion for those who are lost. As the Bible would say, they are slaves to sin. Slaves to their master, the devil. God, that we would have compassion on those people. That their eyes would be open to the truth and to understand that apart from Christ, they cannot free themselves from their sin. That only Jesus can do that through his blood. God, help us to hold fast to the truth, even in the days ahead that seem to be going in a direction where truth very much so is pushed against. Where speaking the name of Jesus is seen as ignorant or old-fashioned. Holding true to your word is seen as unplausible in today's day and age. God, we don't just want to hold on to tradition or something. We want to hold on to your word. So help us to be good stewards of your word, to know what it says, to hold on to it, and to trust you in who you tell us you are. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the work that he has accomplished in his life, in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. And we're thankful that even today, it is our Savior who intercedes on our behalf to you. God, we do love you. Cement us more in your truth each day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.